Good morning. My name is Emily and this is my husband, Rex. Welcome to Love Chapel Hill, where our name is our mission, to love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus. This morning at 10 a.m., we invite you to come and join us for our church's watch party. A couple of us get together and watch the sermons together over Zoom. It's a great way to stay in touch with our church family. All of the information for joining us on Sunday mornings is available on our website at lovechapelhill.com. We hope to see you there. Hey guys, I'm Dustin. Last fall, we walked through the Old Testament prophets. And when we did, we talked about the context of a prophet and what a prophet is and, and, and what they do. And Matt encouraged us that if we had something to say, if we felt like we had the gift of prophecy to speak out. Well, with that in the back of my mind, one day I was looking through seabed.com and I found a study in Isaiah that I thought my band and I would like to go through. It's called The Epic of Eden. Um, it's by Dr. Sandra Richter. And it's a 10 um, session study, 20 to 30 minute videos. Um, there's a workbook that accompanies it. Um, and so it's kind of taken off and we'd like to invite you in. Um, we're gonna start on January 18th at 8 p.m. Um, we are going to meet over Zoom. We'll get these workbooks to you if you're interested. Um, there is an email sent out with more details. Justin sent it out this week. Um, there's a sign-up sheet. There's more videos on an intro video. You can watch the first two sessions for free. Um, we'd love to see you there. It'll start January 18th at 8 p.m. and it'll run through April. We'll have two breaks and we'll go over all those details later. Hope to see you there. Um, I think it'll be a really special study. Hey, Love Chapel Hill. Uh, this is the weekend of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And uh, so this holiday set aside for honoring the legacy of Dr. King. And I want to encourage you at some point over this uh, weekend or over this week to come, um, as you're going to see uh, pictures and quotes posted from him, and that's, that's incredible, and take in that inspiration, absolutely. Uh, but I want to challenge you to press beyond that. And um, take some time to read one of his speeches uh, in its full context. Uh, maybe you want to read his letter from a Birmingham jail or uh, his speech at Stanford in 1967 uh, called The Other America. Uh, or his, there's another speech from 1967 called The Three Evils. Um, I would challenge you to move into reading one of those. Um, it goes beyond the quotes that often get selected and brought out of his speeches, um, which almost everyone agrees with, right? Um, and it presses into uh, some of the sharper words of the prophetic message that he brought. Um, and these are words that we desperately need today. Uh, so I would encourage you um, to do that. I want to just say real quickly, uh, his letter from a Birmingham jail was written in response to what was called a call for unity. And this is a call for unity put out by white clergy members um, who were claiming to be allies of the civil rights movement, um, but were challenging him in the way that he was leading the civil rights movement. And so that letter uh, is written to that group of white pastors. And so I would challenge you to read through that and have your minds and your eyes and your hearts open uh, to what is being said in that. There's one line in particular that stands out to me. 
And he says that one of the things that's most disappointing to him and one of the things that was most difficult for him was not the opposition that was coming against him from white supremacists or from groups like the KKK, but from the lack of support that he saw from white pastors who claimed to be allies. Um, He said that that group uh, speaks words of peace and that they said that they wanted peace, but really what they wanted was a what he called a negative peace, which means a peace uh, that is the absence of tension. And he said, instead, what is needed is a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. And so I want you to be challenged by those words. Those words are challenging me in particular right now. And I want us to be a part of that positive peace, being willing to live in the tension, being willing to feel the tension for the sake of moving towards true and deeper peace. Your grace is Jesus, my redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold. My hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to Him. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. All is mighty and not I, but through Christ in me.
Hey, Love Chapel Hill, uh, a few things before we move into the teaching time this morning. First, a reminder uh, that the last Sunday of January is a fifth Sunday. Uh, and anytime we have a fifth Sunday in the month, part of our normal rhythm and pattern is to gather for worship with our partner churches here locally, uh, our, our extended church family at St. Joseph's and at Life Church. And part of the purpose of that is to be a part of taking small steps towards embodying racial justice here in this community. Uh, so we want to remind you to be a part of that the last Sunday of the month instead of a normal uh, YouTube video of our service or of, of, a, of our service on Facebook. Uh, we're going to join up with what St. Joseph's is doing and partner up with them. Uh, and so they've been broadcasting their services on their Facebook page. And so that's how we're going to engage with them uh, that morning. So just wanted to remind you about that. Uh, also, we have another guest preacher this morning. Uh, I'll be preaching next week, uh, but this is the last in our, our, our series of guest preachers that we've had here lately. Uh, and it's another one of my friends. And I love that. I love the opportunity that we have to have really smart, um, gifted, and authentic people speak into the life of our church family, uh, coming from different contexts in different places, um, and hearing from their heart as a way of, of broadening our view, um, of expanding our heart and understanding of the kingdom all around us. And so I love when we have someone speak into us like that. And it's even more meaningful when it's someone that we consider a friend. And so this morning we have Dr. Absin Joseph. He is uh, a dean and professor of New Testament at Wesley Seminary. Uh, it's a seminary that we uh, partner with um, and that we work with. And so really excited to have him speak this morning and uh, walk us through an overview of the gospel of Matthew. And so you know that we have been there over the last several weeks together. Uh, we will continue to be walking through the gospel of Matthew uh, from now through Easter. Uh, but we've come out of this time of uh, surrounding the nativity and the early life and around the birth narratives of Jesus. And now we're getting ready to turn into the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, and so before we make that turn, uh, Dr. Joseph is going to walk us through an overview of the gospel of Matthew and get us oriented in this. Um, one of the key themes of the gospel of Matthew, scholars across the spectrum agree that one of the key themes is the kingdom of God. Or in Matthew's language, the way he phrases it is the kingdom of heaven. And what we see in the gospel of Matthew is a critique and a challenge 
against any competitive kingdom to the kingdom of God, but not just that, also a compelling and beautiful vision of a better, narrow way. And so I'm really grateful that the Holy Spirit has directed us and guided us to walk through this gospel together. And I'm grateful for Dr. Joseph uh, giving us that sense of the bigger picture of this gospel today. Uh, I've really sensed uh, a pressing to, um, to just spend a few moments praying over the church today. Um, I feel like there are a lot of us who are feeling that weight, um, a lot of us who need the peace of Jesus in our lives in a very clear way. And so uh, before the message, we're going to pause here and we're just going to pray for the church. Okay. Jesus, we are your people. You invited us to come and to follow you, and we have trusted you in that invitation and in that call. And we trust that you are the God who knows the way and who is the way. And so we surrender ourselves to you, to where you want to lead us, And we know that through the journey, it's not just that you are waiting at the end of it, but that you are walking with us every single step of the way. So for people who are a part of this church family today who are under a heavy burden and under a heavy weight, I just pray they would sense you speaking to them in those words that we see here in the Gospel of Matthew that um, your burden is light. It's not because the things that we go through aren't heavy. It's because you carry them for us. So I pray that they would sense that today. Sense you stepping in to carry weight. For people that are mourning, I pray that they would sense you speaking to them from what we see right here in this gospel when you said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And I pray that they would experience your comfort today. I pray that anyone who is tired and weary would hear you say, come to me, all who are tired and weary, and I will give you rest. So as we open up our minds and our hearts to receive your word today and to be pressed into a deeper understanding of what it says and what it means, I pray that there would be this overwhelming sense of your presence and of your love. See your name we pray. Amen. Greetings. My name is Absun Joseph. I serve as the Vice President of Academic Affairs at Wesley Seminary, Indiana Western University. It is a privilege for me uh, to share the word with you today uh, as we journey through the book of Matthew. Uh, uh, Pastor Matt uh, has uh, asked me to uh, speak today on an overview 
of the book. I know that you've uh, been journeying through Matthew over the last few weeks and will continue to do so over the next few weeks all the way through Easter. So I invite you today to join me as we take a look at the way in which Matthew uh, unfolds the story of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your love and faithfulness. We ask that as we go through uh, your word today, that your Holy Spirit will uh, shine upon us, that your Holy Spirit will open our minds and understanding, open our hearts so that we can get a sense of what you want for us today. Be with us as we speak your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Following Jesus through the book of Matthew. There's a way in which Matthew is uh, full of movements. Jesus is on the move throughout. And as we take a look at the 30,000 food view, so to speak, of what Matthew is doing, what we see throughout is that Jesus Christ is on the move. There's a lot of travel that take place. We will not look at all of them, but allow me to kind of emphasize the key places that we see these movements happening and how paying attention to these movements help us understand uh, the message of what Matthew is conveying. The first thing that we can pay attention to is that Jesus is on the move in the sense that he is retracing Israel's steps. The first place we see is that he goes to Egypt, uh, exile, where he experiences God's protection. Then we see him in the wilderness in chapter 4. There too, he is tempted. And there's a way in which both by going to Egypt and by going in the wilderness, Matthew is demonstrating the ways in which Jesus is retracing the steps of Israel. Even when we look at the baptism, the baptism of John, the baptism by John, is set in the context of the story of Egypt and the wilderness. And from that standpoint, we get a sense that Jesus Christ is doing and following the steps of Israel as a way of Matthew establishing Jesus' identity. One of the reasons why we I mentioned that is that even when, when we see um, in the baptism, the idea of God showing up and saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. The identity of Jesus is shown up there. When we look at the escape to e the escape to Egypt. Matthew again connects this with the Old Testament to say, "Out of Egypt I call my son." So what we find is that Jesus is retracing Israel's steps, so that there's a way in which, where Israel fail, Jesus is about to succeed. In the wilderness, Israel failed when they were tempted. But Jesus Christ, when he is tempted, he succeeds in the sense that he overcomes the temptation there. But there's a way in which Jesus is not just retracing Israel's steps. He's also retracing humanity's steps. Because when you look at the way the, the temptations uh, are, pl are 
are portrayed in Matthew, there's similarity between the temptations Jesus faced in the wilderness and the temptations that Adam and Eve faced in, in Eden. Um, so I will only mention this at this point because you will you'll be going deeper uh, in you get a chance to go deeper in each of these texts. But for now, Jesus is on the move by retracing Israel's steps in Egypt, in the wilderness, even through his baptism, so that there's a connection between him, who he is, and Israel, and a connection also in terms of the way his life is going to uh, undo the damages that Adam and Eve's disobedience and Israel's disobedience has done. What can we get from that? There's a way in which, as we look at the, that first piece, following Jesus Christ may bring about trials. Because both in Egypt, there's the temptations and the danger. In the case of Jesus' life, there's the danger of Herod hovering over his life and that of his parents. In the wilderness, we find there's the danger also in terms of what's happening uh, with, with, with him and, and the devil. In both cases, we find God's protection. Just like God protected Israel in the wilderness, God protects Jesus Christ in the wilderness. And we read at the end of the temptation that uh, the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. God is there protecting him. God will be with us, protecting us. But following Jesus will bring about trials in our lives, just the same way he also faced trials. When Jesus left the wilderness, we see him again on the move. And from chapters 4.12 to chapter 7.29, we see him preaching and teaching. And Jesus is not just on the move, the crowds are following him. So again, if you can picture yourself then being part of this crowd and following Jesus Christ, you will see that there's a lot of uh, teaching that's happening. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, you get to chapter 5. You get to chapter 5. Jesus Christ begins now to teach. And he's not just rehearsing the law. He's reinterpreting it. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And what Matthew is doing is presenting Jesus Christ as the supreme teacher and interpreter of the law. At the end of the day, he's greater than Moses. But he's not just interpreting it, he's offering a new way of life. He's offering a new standard of living. It's actually a higher standard of living. As a result, there's going to be a lot of um, conflict that you see between he and the Pharisees. And the conflicts are going to center primarily around how to interpret the law, because the interpretation that he's offering goes counter to what the Pharisees agree with or will have offered, but he's also going to be in conflict with them because the crowds realize that the teaching Jesus is offering is more authoritative than the teachings that the Pharisees, uh, the Pharisees offer. And there are at least two ways in which these teachings are more, more authoritative. There's the 
intrinsic authority with which Jesus Christ teaches. But then there's also the signs and miracles that accompany that. In chapter 4, right before, kind of as in terms of the introduction to the, to the, to the teachings from chapters 5 to 7, we read, Jesus went throughout Galilee in their, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, having seizure, and all of those different things. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from the regions of the Georgian followed him. He's not just on the move. While he's on the move, people are also following him. So you cannot read Matthew without taking part in following him. So as you follow him, then you can hear his teachings. Throughout 5 and 7, he's re resetting the way the people thought. You have the Beatitudes. Then there's the teaching against murder. There's the teaching against adultery. There's the teaching against you know, taking an oath. And in all of this, Jesus is resetting the expectations. You've heard it said, but I say to you. So there's a way in which then following Jesus requires that we live by a higher standard. It's a different set of rules. It is a different set of rules. He is on the move. We're following him. But as we follow him, it requires a change. It requires that we live by a different set of standards, a higher set of standards. Beyond chapter 7, we see him again on the move. And there we see healings and miracles that then are matched with belief and discipleship. Chapters 8, 1 uh, to chapter 12, 50. A lot of healing, you see him heal a man with leprosy. You see him heal uh, the, the servant of a centurion. You, and then, you know, Matthew goes on and just tells us he heals a lot of people. But I think when we think about chapters 8, you know, chapters 8 to 12, chapters 8, chapter 8, 21, 22, need to be read together with chapter 11, 34, 39, and then chapter 12, 46 and 50, 46 to 50. The reason why you need to read those three texts together is because, as I mentioned earlier, the healings and miracles that are described in these chapters are connected to the idea of belief and discipleship. In 8, 20, 21, 22, Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. So following Jesus Christ comes with a cost. You get to chapter 11. Jesus sends his disciples uh, on a mission. And as part of that, he is telling them, um, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, daughter against her mother, a father, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemy will, will be the member of his own household. 
Then you get to chapter 12, 46. Something interesting happens. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside and wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are here standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus is on the move. We're following him. But following him comes at a cost. And what we see here is that Jesus Christ is redefining what family membership looks like. He's redefining kingship. And there's a way in which this is important because following Jesus is not just about following him. It's about belonging in the family of God. And as he mentions then, it requires a set of rules. It requires obedience to the Father. Those who obey are now those who are part of the family. It's about belief that leads to discipleship. And only those who believe then have the set of requirements to be part of the family. We see also in chapter 12, when he sends the mission, and the mission then is, seems to be less about the disciples uh, in chapter 10, when he sends the disciples out, less about the disciples, but more about the authority that is given to them so that they can demonstrate the same kind of healing and miracles that he did in order to bring about the belief in the people that they minister to. Now, as you read in chapter 10, it's a dangerous mission. He's telling them, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. The mission costs something. Jesus is on the move. We're following him, but following him is dangerous. Following him costs something. Yes, he gives authority. Yes, we have the power to do great things, but it's dangerous. There's a way in which the story of John in chapter 11 fits that, fits that same pattern. Because John is in prison at this point because the mission is dangerous. He's in prison and he sends to Jesus Christ because he's, he hears that the Messiah is doing, the Messiah, um, he hears that the Messiah is doing those things. So he sent his disciples to go and ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? What does Jesus do? Go back and report to John what you have heard and, and what you have seen. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are healed. Again, healing miracles that lead to belief and discipleship. But for those of us who follow, it comes at a cost. For those of us who follow, we have to be willing to leave behind our allegiances. We have to be willing to leave behind the way in which we think 
about what family dynamics look like in order to embody the family dynamics that are aligned with the Heavenly Father, who are my mother and my brothers, the ones who do the will of the Father. We get to chapter 13, and we see again that Jesus is on the move. Chapter 13, chapter 13, verse 1, all the way to chapter 14, verse 12. And there, he is teaching about the kingdom, the signs of the kingdom. And as you read the parables of the kingdom, you have the parable of the parables of the weed, weeds, the parable of the sower, the parable of the mustard seed. Jesus is demonstrating how the kingdom of God is different from the kingdom of this world. Now, in the previous section, when he sends the disciples out, he asks them to do one thing, to proclaim that the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. And now in this section, he is demonstrating what is the kingdom of God like. And after discussing what the kingdom of God is like, we get this interesting story at the end, in chapter 14, about John the Baptist being beheaded. And it's very interesting because as Jesus Christ is defining the kingdom, I think the story of John the Baptist ends this section to remind us that the sword of Herod does not rest. Because if you remember, Jesus himself came really close to falling by the sword of Herod. It's a different one. It's a different Herod, Herod the Great, earlier in, 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 in Jesus' story. Here you've got the Tetrarch, but same family. And the dynamics are the same. The kingdom of God operates by rules that are different than the kingdom of this world. He gives them those signs, but what we see what we see is that it's a tale of two kingdoms. It's a tale of two kings. And we will see later on in terms of what kind of king Jesus is, but there's a way in which the two kingdoms, the two kings also speak of two ways of life. So as we follow Jesus Christ through the gospel of Matthew, the question that we are faced with is what kind of life are we going to be living? What kind of kingdom are we a citizen of? Because the way we live determines what kingdom we are in. And the reverse is true. The kingdom we are in should impact the way we live our lives. And those two things should match. If we live one way and say, oh, we're part of God's kingdom, but our actions do not match, then really it does not, it does not align. Jesus is on the move. He gives the signs of the kingdom. And as we follow, we need to then embody the way of life that matches the kingdom of heaven. We get to chapter 14, verse 13. Again, we see him on the move. But here, as we read from chapter 14 to 13 to chapter 16 to 12, 
we see Matthew showing us that faith is found in the most unlikely of places, the unlikeliest of places. There, the first thing we see is that Jesus Christ feeds the 5,000. Then you see him in terms of uh, the, the miracle of walking on water. Then you've got the conversation about defilement. Then there's the faith of the Canaanite woman. Then he feeds the 4,000. And then you've got the Pharisees asking for a sign. If you look at these stories together, there's a certain connection that I want to point out to you. The feeding of the 5,000 happens, and there's 12 baskets that are left over. Then Jesus, walk, then Jesus walks on water. As he interacts with Peter, Peter comes out and he tells Peter, Oh, you of little faith. And then he kind of feel bad for Peter because he actually takes, it takes courage to say, hey, can I actually come out and walk? He walks out on the boat, but then starts sinking. You see the comment about Peter having little faith. But then the story of the Canaanite woman talks about the issue of bread as well. Jesus replies to her, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she replied. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus Christ said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. I think there's a larger thing that's happening here. So that when you read the chapter, when you read that section at a 30,000 foot view, you see the excess of bread. 12 baskets in the 5,000, 7 baskets after the 4,000, and then the crumbs that are being spoken here, little faith right after the 5,000, the lady having great faith, and then later on, the Pharisees demanding a sign in order to believe in Jesus Christ. Faith is being found in the unlikeliest of places. So there's a way in which then as we follow Jesus Christ to Matthew, we find that following him requires faith and that faith can be found in the unlikeliest of places. We move on in chapter 16. Again, Jesus is on the move, but there we're going to encounter a crucified Messiah as we follow him. This section from chapter 16 to chapter 20, chapter 16, 13 to chapter 20, 34, contains the biggest paradox, the paradox of paradox. People are seeing, but they're not understanding. Peter declares that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, but the way he behaves is not, uh, is not, is not compatible with what he is describing. Yes, there's the transfiguration and Jesus Christ demonstrates himself to them, and they recognize that he is the Messiah, Yet he starts talking about his death. In their mind, the Messiah is supposed to ride into Jerusalem and rule as king, not die. We see the conversation about the one who is the greatest. And Jesus Christ is changing the economy of the kingdom because the one who are the greatest should be the last of them all. We also see the idea of what is true riches? The kingdom economy is different than the kingdom of this world because those who are rich 
in the kingdom are the ones that are poor in heart. In spite of these teachings, we see later on in chapter 20, a mother shows up and say, hey, I want my son to be one at your right hand, one at your left hand. And Jesus Christ again has to reteach them about what is true greatness. And I think it's very insightful then that at the end of this section, we find the miracle about the two blind men receiving their sight. Because throughout this section, what we're finding is that the people are seeing, but they really do not understand. So the, the, the miracle of the blind man at the end of this section is really an object lesson about the fact that following Jesus Christ takes a special kind of sight. We need to look beyond what we see as we follow him. You get to chapter 21, again he's on the move. And now the king is here. He's going to enter triumphantly, triumphantly into Jerusalem. But the people are not ready. The temple is not ready. That's why he walks in to the temple and he cleans the temple. He is here, but he's not the kind of king that they're expecting. You see the conversation about Caesar, right? Caesar is no match for him, just like Herod was no match for him. But the king has come to die. And because of that, he's betrayed by his own. He is disowned because their expectations are not being met. So you get to Jerusalem, there's a lot of disappointment. Yes, there's a triumphal entry, but beyond the triumphal entry, it's really disappointment. It is Peter's disappointment. It is Judah's disappointment. And Judah is so disappointed that he drives him to betray Jesus Christ. And before we before we are too harsh on both Judas and Peter, if we follow Jesus Christ closely, we realize how disappointing this can be. For us to expect the best out of someone and for those expectations not to be met. Following Jesus Christ can be disappointing. Beyond this, we see him again on the move in chapter 26, 36 to chapter 28, 15. But again, the darkness continues. He goes from the, the table into the garden. He's arrested. He faces shame. He faces mockery. He's slandered. He's falsely accused. And those who follow him there better be brave enough or emotionally stable enough. Because Peter was not. Because Judah was not. Peter denied him. And Judah, Judas committed suicide. Because again, just like following him can be disappointing, following him can also be treacherous especially when we put our expectations in the wrong places, especially when we allow what we expect to dictate what we think, as opposed to opening our heart and mind 
for his message to shape the way we think and the way we behave. But he's on the move. Because three days after the death, the ground shakes and he's risen. And there we see him again on the move where at the end of the book, Jesus Christ now is sending his disciples. Go, he tells them. And there's a way in which Jesus, as he sends us out, the book of Matthew kind of ends the way it begins in, in some sense. In that it begins with a search party for the king. And then at the end, the king now is sending out a search party for his people. Where is the king of the Jews that's been born? The Magi ask. And Herod will ask, will say, go, find him, so that I too can go worship him. But here at the end, the king himself is saying, go. He's sending out a search party for his people. He's sending out a search party. And we are now the ones being sent. We are now the ones going and finding the people that are lost. Just like he sent his disciples in chapter 10. We are now the ones going finding the lost, and bringing them to him. He is on the move because his disciples are on the move. And you know, I've been talking about Jesus Christ being on the move and us following him. And you will be mistaken if you think about following him just as a journey. Following him is a movement of discipleship. Not just a movement, it's a process of becoming. Because to follow him means we need to be transformed. To follow him means we need to think differently. We need to become different kinds of people. To follow him means we need to pay attention to the message and the teaching that he has given. And allow me to then identify at least three of the primary things that I think as we follow Jesus Christ. Especially in the, in the context of the times that we live in. One, love God and love the neighbor and love the enemy. In Matthew 5, 43, 48 and in Matthew 22, 34, 40, we see this. It's not enough to love God and love our neighbors. We also need to love our enemies. What does that mean, especially in today's time, for us to love our enemies? The other question I think we need to be asking ourselves, and we see in Matthew, is what is the path to true honor? Throughout the gospel, we see Jesus Christ again establishing the rules of the kingdom his kingdom. And to be part of that kingdom, I think there are three things that Jesus is asking us to do. One, we, live in, we need to live in the audience of one. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Live only in the audience of one. That is, live for God alone. 
it's connected to later when we talk about fear God and not men in chapter 10, 26, 31. And then later on chapter 10, 32, 33, honor God. But it doesn't mean as we live in the audience of one, it doesn't mean we do not care about what others think. It means we so live in God's presence that our life is so transformed that God himself is reflected in us because we are living as children who are in his family, as children who belong in his kingdom. And throughout the gospel, as we follow Jesus Christ, we see the cost of true discipleship. And the cost of true discipleship is undivided loyalty to God, to Jesus, Matthew 8, 18 to 22, and cross-bearing, Matthew 10, 34, 39, and Matthew 16, 24, 28. As we read Matthew, Jesus is on the move throughout. And as he is on the move, the crowds are following him. And the invitation that Matthew is giving is that we as readers need to join that crowd and follow Jesus Christ. But following him is not just a movement. Following him is discipleship. And discipleship is about transformation. Matthew begins with a search party for the king. And it ends with the king sending us out as a search party for his people. Will you participate in that search? Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your love and faithfulness. Give each and every one of us what it takes to follow you. It calls for sacrifice. It calls for losses. It calls for trials. But we also know that you are present with us throughout. And we depend on you as you guide us and go with us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Nothing compares to your love How could I make
Thank you so much, Dr. Joseph, for that amazing, beautiful, elegant overview of the book of Matthew. It was so enlightening and so encouraging to hear about Jesus through the eyes of Matthew and speaking directly into our lives today. I want to thank you for doing that for us, but also want to thank you and Indiana Wesley Seminary for equipping and educating so many people around the world to bring the love and hope of Jesus through the Gospels in so many places. We really appreciate all that you are doing. My name is Joel and I'm with Connections here at Love Chapel Hill. So if you're new with us today or you've been with us for just a few weeks, we would love to hear from you. And we try to make that as easy as possible. So go to the bottom of the video where you are, there's a link that says uh, Connect Card. Just click on that link and just fill out some simpler information and we can have a conversation together. Well, as we close today, 
Uh, I don't think uh, this is far from many people's minds, many people like yourself and myself, that this week is going to be quite momentous. And with what happened at the Capitol two weeks ago, probably, like myself, most of you are having a lot of fear and anxiety for what may come this week or even in the weeks or months ahead. And I've been praying about this and how I should respond and how I should react. And I came, it felt like the Lord gave me two things that I can do. And I want to share them with you. And uh, the first thing is we can pray. Scripture says that we can cast our fears and anxieties on him and he will bring us peace. The other part is we can love. We can love our neighbor as ourselves, And these are the two things, two things that we can control. We can pray and we can love. So I want to challenge you this week and myself uh, to find opportunities to pray, to find opportunities to love. And these are the two things that we can control and that can make a difference. Well, as we close today in prayer, we are celebrating the great uh, Dr. King this week. I thought we would close with actually his words. So we're going to read a prayer. If you want to don't mind closing your eyes and bowing your head, we're going to read a prayer from Dr. King to the church. We thank thee, O God, for the spiritual nature of man. We are in nature, but we live above nature. Help us to never let anybody or any condition to pull us so low as to cause us to hate. Give us strength to love our enemies and to do good to those who despitefully use us and persecute us. We thank thee for thy church, founded upon thy word, that challenges us to do more than sing and pray, but to go out and work as though the very answer to our prayers depend upon us and not upon thee. Then finally, help us to realize that man was created to shine like stars and to live on through all eternity. Keep us, we pray, in perfect peace. Let us to walk together, pray together, sing together, and live together until that day when all God's children, black, white, red, and yellow, will rejoice in our common band of humanity, in the kingdom of our Lord and of our God, we pray. Amen. Thank you.